episode, I caught up with Alex Broom, a professor of sociology at the Department of Sociology and Social Policy School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Sydney. He is a recognised leader in sociology with specific interest in health. This has included a focus on the social, cultural and political dimensions of cancer and palliative care, and more recently infectious diseases. His work takes a person-centred approach, qualitatively exploring the complex intersections of individual experience and social, cultural and political context. The interview was off script from the very beginning, and at some point I remembered to press record. So here we go. One of the papers you wrote about gender norms and the primary caregiver roles. I thought that that paper was absolutely fascinating. And you were talking about the gender norms, particularly of men and using the feminist theory to understand men's experiences of caregiving. Yeah, quite a bit of the work that we've done is focused on how living with cancer is very much embedded in wider social structures, whether it be gendered relations or even ethnicity, race, class relations. So, and, and that particular paper focuses in on a, a very thorny issue, which is how when women that we interviewed talked to us about cancer, there was a disproportionate emphasis on how their husbands who didn't have cancer, and this was in the context of uh, heterosexual relationships, mm formal marriage as well and uh, that there was over concern for how their husband was doing or husbands were doing versus in the context of um, the men who were interviewed and so whilst we didn't want to box everyone or every relationship into the to one category or one set of relationships because we we're well aware that there's lots of diversity out there it's still quite evident that those dominant roles and you see this in the pandemic as well right like the disproportionate impact women in terms of both the burden of informal care, caring for the elderly, caring for the children, impact on work, career, the time consequences are considerable. And it just, there's this web of gendered kind of splash from the pandemic that ultimately is quite opaque. So you see it at the journal level, submissions to journals from male academics during the pandemic went up. Submissions to, um, you know, for research articles from female academics went down. Those are little proxies, or mm. little is the wrong word, um, inadequate proxies for a major social gendered problem mm. that spans right from living through a pandemic and its disproportionate impacts to living with cancer. Mm. Well, it all speaks to the issues of survivorship and the priority of our research program, which which is person before disease, um, or perhaps those categories aren't as separate as we might sometimes think. The person and their life and relationships, their gender positionality, their place within the context of work, whether it be with good support or not, where they live, how much um, generational support they have are really fundamental and in some respects more fundamental than, for example, the nature of their disease than if we just look at it, at it on a disease level. And I suppose mm. we don't want to uh, overemphasize subjective and diminish the objective. What we're trying to do is put those back together where often they've been separated. Actually. And then what you get is 
if research doesn't accommodate what I would call the multi-dimensional aspects of illness and survivorship and sometimes recovery and sometimes not recovering or progression towards the end of life, if we don't look at it in a multi-dimensional way, we often miss things that are happening. And your example that you made before of the gendered nature of illness, that's not often seen in the figures. Like we don't get figures of how much of a burden we feel we are within a household or how much Mm. we contribute to caring. Often we don't get those figures. We just get survival um, and so forth. Because I guess all these sorts of things have like a, a filter down impact in terms of like you're not approaching this in a way where you're trying to capture like the diversity of voice and experience, then you're, you're biased in the types of, you know, end disease results that you're receiving. So I think one of the things that's interested me is sort of looking at survivorship rates of cancers that impact only women. So Mm. say, for example, like ovarian cancer has a a very low survivorship rate compared to, say, prostate cancer. And yet there is an argument to be made that, you know, they're genetically different, the biology is different, you know, all this sort of stuff. But there's also the argument to be made of in terms of research priorities and who's making these decisions about where to direct funding and whose voice are you listening to that marginalizes specific people within the population yeah i mean that's obviously like a very big picture example but you know as you sort of start to filter down it becomes more and more complex absolutely and so that speaks to what we might call the political economy of care that sounds really complex but actually in reality it's can be kind of whittled down to the notion that Well, we make active decisions about what we fund, what we support, and what we do. And that has consequences for who lives and dies. Mm. It's not simply a matter of an equitable landscape where every tumour stream and every person receives care in the same way. But it's much more than just the social determinants of health. So what we see very often is people slipping into this idea that what we are saying is, right, we just have to focus more on vulnerable or minority groups, and then that will fix the situation. But actually, that's not the case. The issue is not just about vulnerability. It's about deliberate structures of investment in particular things over another. Mm. Like we talked about before, gendered norms which suit men or many men, some men, and not women or some women. So that's actually about specific entrenched structures, whether it be patriarchy, whether it be racism, whether it be whatever form of social structure. That's actually deliberately and consciously reproducing a certain set of circumstances which result in adverse consequences for certain people over others. Mm. So if we just look at disease, we can say things about ovarian cancer for a whole range of clinical or disease-based reasons. It has lower survival rates and, you know, yes, it needs more investment, but it's different from prostate cancer or whatever other cancer we select. Or we could say, actually, particular types of cancer have been able to foster more mobility around their grouping. They've received more attention, sometimes for good reason, sometimes for questionable uh, reason or overinvestment based on certain assumptions about good or bad citizens. The lung cancer and breast cancer mm-hmm. was a classic one. Or they're embedded in, and prostate cancer is a good example of this, of men being reluctant to seek help early has traditionally been seen as a problem 
for getting timely treatment. So that's where the gender dynamic mm. we talked about before flips over on the male population. So suddenly it becomes a barrier to survivorship. And that's one of the things we would often emphasize is that these structures really work well for no one. There are always consequences one way or the other. And it's in everyone's, in a social scientist's view, it's in everyone's um, position to challenge them. So I guess, but you were using quite language before, which was quite specific, for example, to the genetics or the type of disease. What we're seeing, um, or what we've seen over the last 20th century, really, particularly the second half, was the production of clinical knowledge of disease based largely on male subjects. We still see is the production of clinical knowledge and knowledge of disease based on white subjects very often. And you can see that in the context of certain areas of precision medicine as well, where a lot of the diagnostics and the sort of the various innovations that are occurring in that scene are very much based on the profiles of white subjects. Some people argue that that was just a matter of, well, that was who was participating in research at the time or, or even still. And I would say, well, we have a, what we would call in the social sciences an epistemological problem, which is we're producing knowledge, which is myopic. So it's only focused on particular bodies and particular populations. And that is a reproductive problem. So it's likely to further benefit those populations, which are the subjects of the production of knowledge. So therefore you get an entire system which makes legible the problems and solutions appropriate for that particular group that are being studied. And that creates a really problematic environment because it looks like it's working for the world. Mm. But in fact, it may only be working for a privileged kind of majority, if you like. So the issues of justice and in cancer are not just about vulnerability. It's about the structuring of disease and treatment and outcomes by a whole set of uh, institutions and ways of thinking about things which need to be challenged. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's sort of the, the one question in that scenario that, that researchers aren't asking is why are they the only ones that turn up and participate in the study. And that brings up a whole lot of, you know, social and economic questions that require a whole other body of research to, to understand, but are nonetheless incredibly important when you're trying to create knowledge. Exactly. And so, and, you know, keeping on this theme of economics or the explicit social, economic and political structuring of opportunity um, if you look at the Australian context, the use of public and private sector oncologists, we see, well, it's not tracked that well, off-label use in private sector oncology of particular therapeutics that aren't available in public sector environments. Now, what that means is that you're purchasing opportunities according to your position and often uh, whether you're in a metropolitan area, whether you have the social networks, what we would call social capital in order to get access to an oncologist who's senior and, a pro and who operates in a private setting that has access to particular institutions. We know that the Peter Mac, um, for example, does different types of molecular profiling and panels than 
other institutions. So the very things that become visible about your disease differ depending on the institution that you're being treated at. So what that essentially means is that certain bodies and certain disease contexts get seen in different ways, get treated in different ways, and the, the outcomes are not just about certain centres have different capacities or whatever. We have the capacity to do this in every place if we wanted to, or do we? And that is a question we need to raise, which is there is only so much money in the public purse. And so, uh, and one hospital executive said to me recently, and I can say this anonymously because I'm not saying the hospital, I'm not saying anything about them, public think and want us to provide gold standard care. We can provide a reasonable kind of, a reasonable level of care. We can't admit publicly that we can't provide the gold standard because it's politically not palatable. So what we have is an environment where there is an expectation of the public sector to provide the gold standard. There is a decreasing affordability nationally and globally um, to fund the cancer therapeutics. There's lobbying from disease tumor streams, which isn't related to necessarily the quality of life or life expectancy outcomes of emerging therapeutics. There is complex breaking down of through different trial designs and different precision therapies, which break down traditional divisions between different cancer groups, which then also break down funding arrangements potentially, or do they? Because what happens is the funding arrangements tend to get reproduced because the lobby groups and the organisations supporting those tumour streams are still alive and well and pushing for support for those groups, quite rightly. But then the way in which the field is moving is not necessarily reflective of those enduring institutional structures. So I'm getting back to this point of economics, distribution or disproportionate investment, but also the equity issues and the justice issues that can emerge from that. Yeah, I think you raised an an interesting point just going right back to this idea of public and private and being able to afford to pay for a different treatment, which ultimately could it impact your you know your outcome it's a lot more complex than that though because proposing a a model that is more equitable and is more just flies in the face of capitalism and so you end up having this juxtaposed idea where we're sort of trying to advocate for a more equitable system within a system that's not the primary aims so how do we sort of combat that and what i've interpreted the question is is justice um cost effective so let's go with that and i would say the answer is a resounding yes uh if we take the pandemic as an absolutely palpable example the reason why in many respects it's a struggle is because of social justice issues so issues of vulnerability lack of work or insecure work the states that have the most Sweden being the exception the most comprehensive kind of forms of sort of solidarity in terms of their welfare state have largely fared quite well so if we go back to that question of the system ultimately is unjust and therefore really what we're talking about is a fundamental challenge to the entire system i'm not sure that's that we necessarily need to be that radical i think it's more i mean obviously part of me feels like we should be that radical but on the other hand there's room for a stronger narrative about how solidarity and how justice serves us all well and that's kind of where I was going with the 
parallel issues that are playing out in the pandemic. But if we actually, for example, create better outcomes across the board in the context of cancer versus really expensive and in some cases quite extraordinary outcomes for the privileged few, which society would you rather live in? Now, that's obviously a personal question just as much as it's um, an academic question. I've lived in three different countries which have various levels of privatisation and public health care delivery. I experienced the NHS for a number of years. So I personally and academically studied how distribution of costing and sort of the types or levels of privatisation play out, uh, although I haven't thus far um, been treated for cancer. So I have experience seeing how that plays out. And I think a, a system which provides a good distribution of reasonable quality services to everyone is ultimately better than a system which provides really in the America, I suppose I'm talking about the American system here, fairly extreme levels of innovation and intervention, but a very significant polarization between the poor and the wealthy. So I guess if we look at the sort of postcode lottery in Australia, when it comes to cancer, would we be better? And this is a question for you, perhaps, or the audience or whoever, really, would we be better investing in better infrastructure for the sort of routine care um, across the board versus high-end innovation, which is increasingly challenging for the state, whether privately funded or publicly funded, to actually um, pay for. I'm going to ask it as a question. I think it is an open question, and I think people should be made or supported to vote on that too. Because I often think, I don't think that's often clear in Australian politics what you get if you vote in particular directions and what the ripple effects are for living with cancer, getting treated, and so forth. So I think there's a series of complex questions in, in both my answer and also in your question, original question. Yeah, and I think you raised an interesting point before and something that I've certainly thought about since working more in this cancer research space and, you know, the rise of genomics and precision medicine and just the sheer costs and resourcing that it takes to even contemplate implementing this on a widespread scale. And this idea of the population expectation that if you're sick, you're going to get this gold standard of care, but it's kind of the elephant in the room is like, well, how do we pay for that? How do we implement that in in an equitable, sustainable way? Yeah, so a lot of this discussion comes down to an issue of kind of public good and the state, whether you want a, a active, powerful state, uh, whether you trust it to produce goods. And I guess the market, whatever that is, and however we might think about that, is going to price things probably to the point where things become unaffordable, because that's the nature of the dynamic, is that you'll price what people are prepared to pay, and people are prepared to pay a lot for their life, but governments actually can't afford that. So I think pricing is not necessarily always a bad thing. Um, we do a lot of work in antimicrobials, I personally think antibiotics should be um, priced higher for more privileged populations because ultimately that's a, a diminishing resource which we can collectively not afford to lose. And price becomes a way of putting a value on a commodity but also on a future return that we might get as a community. We're going back to talking about time. If we have a massive investment in you know, therapies, precision therapies, 
does that contribute to our entire system being ultimately sustainable over the long term? One of the common comments that I get from particularly American oncologists or I've heard it from others as well is that precision therapies might actually break the American health system. And the extraordinarily expensive sort of therapies which the market won't say no to. Whereas uh, if you look at other health systems, although the Tories um, in some respects seem keen to break this down, um, the NHS has taken considerably more reluctant approach to uh, sort of purchasing innovation in a, in a, in a um, sort of relentlessly enthusiastic way. And it's probably got slightly lower level of returns to use a very emotionless language in terms of its investment, but probably has got better results across the board. And I'm not advocating the NHS. I'm just using it as an example of how economics makes a difference. Absolutely. You've talked a bit about this idea of equity. And for me, I, I think there's a, a distinct difference between equality and equity. So I'm interested in your idea of how you achieve this equity within a system that is actually at the moment quite inequitable. In the specific context of cancer? Yeah. So how you were talking before about resourcing of in and direction of research investment and prioritization of within certain diseases and, and those sorts of things. How do you determine a criteria that is more equitable? So there's probably two, that's probably a two-tiered answer that I'd give to that. And the first one is often the last one, which is I'd, I think we need to persuade everyone that equity is um, beneficial to everyone which might sound like a really paradoxical statement to make because how do you sell equity to the privileged? Mm. And that's ultimately what this whole crisis has shown us is that holding everyone up to an extent is beneficial to a group. And so I've somewhat put the cart before the horse because I've said, uh, you, you asked me, how do you do it? And I, I told you what, what you need to do to sell it to people. Um, so if we go sort of back to this question of, well, how do you achieve equity? I'm not, I'm a pragmatist, not an idealist in many respects. I don't believe that a system is ever going to be perfect. I believe that humans and non-humans will always sort themselves into hierarchies and that it's fruitless to think that we would never have power or any sort of forms of structure within organisations or systems. So I put that up front. However, it doesn't mean that we're not A, responsible and B, all benefit from creating as just and equitable um, a world as possible. So I guess in the context of cancer and cancer services, when you start identifying, for example, patterns and funding and distribution, which are clearly going to reproduce inequities. And one of the th one of the areas that we were talking about previously is very inconsistent um, sort of molecular profiling and opportunities for participation in trials. And I think really the only way to govern that is to actually audit and have surveillance systems in private contexts as well. There's a opportunity for everyone with a particular uh, in a particular or with a particular disease. I think just getting that data to start off with would be useful because I think often clinicians are generally extremely benevolent and caring for the individual patient and they certainly don't want to see people not getting the best care. 
that is not the situation that you see. They're in a structural environment often where it's only possible to do certain things versus other things. They're clamoring to get their patients on the latest clinical trial and ringing around colleagues and saying, you know, can we get them on this? Can we get them on that? Ringing pharmaceutical companies and saying, can I get compassionate use of this? They're operating within a market and within a structural environment, which is actually really tricky. So what you need is comprehensive information on what is actually happening so we're able to say well hey that's actually not fair and then my experience is that clinicians will say that's not fair so we need more here and we need more over here and ultimately this is not serving our collective interests Mm. this institution has this capacity and this institution doesn't and i do i truly believe that cancer care professionals would sit back and say, no, we want the same level of quality of care available across all our institutions. Much like we're talking about in terms of patient populations and the broader society, that equitable environment works for everyone. Yeah, and I do think this this collective voice that's able to advocate for the best outcomes for their patients is something that is missing within the sector. Through no one's fault, I think it's, it's a combination of factors of under-resourcing, being time poor, not having access to, you know, these facts and figures. and But I do think that that sort of collective advocacy is something that would be really powerful within the healthcare system. I mean, there's epidemiological work that shows, obviously, that the lower socioeconomic groups have a higher burden of cancer, but it's also quite obvious and shown in the epidemiological data that that's not about purely lifestyle. So there are health system, maybe even intergenerational issues, which fundamentally um, shape the concrete outcomes that we're seeing disease-wise. And then you could say, just to be play devil's advocate, well, okay, what's the advantage like at a population level if we're going to extend this kind of moral debate? And it's like, well, actually uh, getting cancer is costly and surviving cancer and living a the fullest life you can is of benefit to everyone. There are benefits, there are tax benefits, there are productivity benefits and contributions to society and so forth. So I think because I'm sort of circling back to that point you made before about choices that the privileged, um, you didn't say it in these exact terms, but this is what (laughs) I got out of it, that wealthy people or reasonably wealthy people, the structures of public or private healthcare have been set up so they can have a choice. And I would argue that that's a very particular choice and it makes invisible the effect of that choice and the effect of that choice is that other people don't get opportunities for survivorship and cost the system money which then increases the burden on uh, the privileged so what we have is a problem of visibility what Mm. is circulating here what's being costed what's being valued and from a public relations perspective there's always a bit of a problem too because how do you sell equity and like i mentioned before i actually think equity is profitable for all just not uh, necessarily uh, in monetary terms yeah absolutely i mean i think you just raised an interesting point there about visibility and i think if we're thinking from a personal level people are becoming more concerned about ethics and morality and sustainability and not being part of this system which has has perpetuated a lot of social, political, economic issues that make living on this planet unsustainable. And I think, you know, when you sort of have these discussions and you realize that, oh, actually, I have private health insurance, but I thought I was doing it for the greater good. And then it actually turns out that that's not 
the case. And mm. I think people people would be uncomfortable with that. I'm certainly uncomfortable with it. Make, it's making me rethink my life choices. This is a, a really complex, difficult question to answer, especially when you are someone who comes from a position of privilege. So let's take those two words, sustainability and equity. And you also mentioned capitalism and what it stands for, what is valued. So what is valued in capitalism, broadly speaking, and to really oversimplify things, is obviously the continued expansion, the circulation of capital um, is crucial, the extraction of surplus labour, and essentially um, the constant creation and recreation of value. Now, if we look at cancer therapeutics and the biotech industry and how precision medicine has absolutely taken off, one can't help but wonder whether that market is fueling the direction of what is provided to the population versus going back to this two words of sustainability and equity, both of which I've argued and today are ultimately good for everyone. And it's hard to argue that sustainability is not. And um, hopefully after our discussion, it's hard to argue that equity is not as well. <laughs> so, um, but capitalism in some of its forms and phases has made it very, very hard for us to look at anything else other than the a very myopic view of value. And so, and this comes back to what I said earlier on, which is we look at the person, not the disease. So you can cost an extra six months, right? In terms of thinking about capitalism in the market, it's hard to put value on that for a billionaire. That might be worth $100 million for someone else. It might still be worth $100 million, but they might not have $100 million. But you know what my point is? The, the thing is that we can quantify disease and time um, and therefore we can somehow come up with some value on that. But the reality is that when you spend a lot of time with people living with cancer or dying with cancer, is that the value that they place on things doesn't align with what what we've described as mm. a capitalist kind of marketization of cancer therapeutics does. So we also need a very strong patient person-centered approach to this, which is what is actually valued a calm ending, easing into the end of life or living with cancer with a, you know, a low symptom burden as possible. Uh, what is the aim here and what is valued by us or whoever it is that's, um, that's receiving care? One of the reasons why we do what we're doing is because one of the ways to counter or challenge the sort of market of innovation and the potential lack of sustainability or equity in, in services is to actually systematically map and engage patients in the distribution of care because they will not put up with the things that we have been describing today and they will politically mobilise probably and person sort of centred accountability is probably what we're looking for as social scientists. And I think it's this kind of idea of a person-centered approach in medicine means very different things depending on the discipline from which you approach it. So doctors and scientists would sort of argue that they do take the person-centered approach. You know, they want to find the best treatment for the disease that their patient presents to them. But the person-centered approach is far more complex than that. I think how we understand humans within this context is still very narrow when you're coming at it from like a scientific perspective. And so I think this is such an interesting conversation. I hear the conversations that 
come from scientists and they would absolutely say we take a person-centered approach. I agree that person-centeredness, a thoroughly diverse concept that's been used. If we look at what is done in practice, what is often considered person-centered is asking the the person or patient about what they think about clinical things. So to be really a a bit simplistic, but for the purposes of the discussion. Part of the problem can come when the person isn't actually fundamental to the process of what is driving things here. What do we value? And I don't mean just what do we value in terms of like, do I want one month more, six months more, 10 years more? I mean, what is the all aspects, all multidimensional aspects of this mean to me and how might that be actually part of the solution to whatever the problem is in and around cancer. The person is often not front and centre and clinicians and oncologists will say the same thing, which is, well, we try and be as person-centred as possible, but in the end, you know, they do want to, they want their, they want their disease treated, Alex. Mm. Um, they want to recover and we, we do want to focus on that. And I don't argue with that, nor should I. I think that what we're really talking about here is not a focus on the person and not the disease. What we're talking about is, in the end, the question of who we are and who is around us and the conditions in which we live is just as important as the disease within us and might even be connected. That's a conversation for another day, but that's what we mean by person-centred. So what we're really talking about what I'm talking about is the fact that taking a multidimensional approach to this challenge of cancer, and often cancer is not the challenge. It's all of the other things going on in life, actually. Cancer is what needs to be managed while the challenge of life is taken care of. Uh, And that's what what we often mean by the person, the importance of the person. I have so many thoughts. Um. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I mean, um, if you were blank, that would be bad. I just had a thought before about this whole conversation requires patients or people to be quite introspective and have an understanding of themselves and the situation that they find themselves in, in order to make what is a, an extremely complex decision. And I, I think sometimes it is easier to sort of sit down with your doctor and they say, look, you can have X, Y, Z treatment and it'll give you on average X number of months because the, the flip side is, you know, really having to go within yourself and think about, well, what is important to me? If you've got a particularly difficult diagnosis, bringing in death and dying and what that means. And I think a lot of these things, a lot of these ideas are not very well articulated within our society. You know, we, d- we don't like talking about emotion. We don't like having difficult conversations. You know, when we sort of sit here and talk about the person being at the centre, philosophically, it's a fabulous idea. It's a great idea. But also I think that can be an uncomfortable place for people to be. Ah, yes. Much of my first 10 years of my career was focused on the hospice, first in the UK uh, and then in um, New South Wales and Queensland. And I guess my immediate response to, to your 
your thought process really, uh, which is a good one, is it is extraordinarily uncomfortable. Disease is probably comfortable to a certain extent for the clinician, but um, in the end, what you see is patients and families and will have to come to terms with these sorts of complex things in the end anyway. So I think um, the focus on disease, and, and we've written quite extensively on this, making, making you comfortable as a clinician, the next innovation, the next study available, having an option to give is a very powerful what we call normative driver of not just oncology but much of medicine but certainly um, oncology and I've worked extensively with palliative care doctors and nurses and, and this is a this is something they really struggle with which is the suffering that ensues when the person is not or issues around the person and what we're talking about that multi-dimensional nature of life and, and the individual and their family is not addressed through all stages of the, the process of being ill and trying to uh, recover or, or whatever the trajectory might be. So I think that, I mean, perhaps it's persons-centred, not person-centred. It's probably a better way of putting it, which is acknowledging the fact that for a good proportion of people, you know, they'll never recover and mm. they'll have to process all that really difficult stuff, the grief, suffering, loss, identity issues. So will their carers and ultimately probably so do clinicians. And so I suppose this takes us all the way back to palliative care clinicians often lean on the emotions and interpersonal aspects of it because they have to. That that's If they don't do that well, then, well, it's a pretty difficult ending for everyone. So I think that those connections which we've tried to work with between oncology and palliative care are extremely important now not everyone goes along that trajectory and you know we're seeing quite significant populations who are just living for long periods of time with cancer and have nothing to do with palliative care for significant portions of that so it's no good having either the curative sphere and the palliative care sphere and we need to ensure that we get that sort of person-centered emphasis across all potential trajectories but i think that and I feel like I re somewhat repeat this statement and it's been repeated by a lot of researchers. I think that, you know, the importance of medical education and probably training around emotional intelligence feels like I'm repeating myself over the last 20 years. And, but maybe it's some things just need to be repeated. Maybe it's like the equity and sustainability issue. We just need to keep talking about it. But what you see uh, and what we've shown in our work, we have a paper that we published a while ago called The Art of Letting Go. And it talks about junior doctors who have a senior mentor who does it well and really knows themselves, can talk to patients, about what's really going on and do a, a really great job of two things, having that relationship and that difficult conversation, but mentoring it to the up-and-coming clinicians. So if you don't have that, it's not teachable in a book, probably not in medical school. It's like you say, it's about selection of people who are good in terms of emotional intelligence, not just in terms of the technical sort of aspects of study. And it's about equity as well. It's about making sure you recruit medical students and doctors who um, actually reflect the diversity of the population. Mm. I think it's also about having and making the time to have these conversations. Um, yes. You know, time has been a big thing that you've talked about. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's an interesting issue, time, and it comes back to that question of value, but we can also put cost on it because classic example, maybe it's not classic, but it's the example that comes to my mind is um, an end-stage cancer patient who crashes into emergency at the end of life, which is costed at extraordinary, like, you know, 
ten to twenty thousand dollars or or thereabout. That largely happens because of inadequate or insufficient conversations and support processes. So what you've got there is visibility because someone's done the figures of what it costs when things aren't done well. Now. The problem that oncologists face is that no one's costing what the value is when they have those really decent long conversations which enable you know a, a really productive process. In fact, one of the Medicare items is complex patients. Now, I've only had informal discussions with oncologists about this, but from my understanding, and I could very well be wrong, so you know take this as speculation, is that um, very few charge for complex patient consultations and there's you know beyond this conversation for today but i guess a question to raise is again you know we talked about antibiotics a while ago that the levers that we have what's available to us to encourage discussions about emotions it's not just about training people to be reflective it's about giving them the opportunity to Mm. so it's totally useless to say oh, we should just teach emotional intelligence or we should mentor effectively. It's like, well, if your structural conditions put no value on quality conversations, then no one's going to have quality conversations unless there are exceptional, probably kill themselves in the process because they have a queue of patients outside and they go home without adequate and they end up decompensating and therefore you get suicide, depression, anxiety and workforce burnout, which, you know. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that, you know, like the, the weave throughout this conversation is a systemic structural issues which perpetuate all of these problems. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to be thinking about this for ages. So um, anyway. Um... Catalysis is produced by Sydney Catalyst. Music is by Ling Zijun and distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial and non-derivatives license. Until next time, thanks for listening.